Welcome to the journey of an esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Welcome to our show, Journey of an Esthete Podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I'm, I'm so happy to do this show because um, this is kind of unusual um, for a number of reasons. So I had many kinds of guests on our show. I've had coal miners and uh, singers and trombonists and, and poets and, and philosophers. And uh, you fit in very comfortably with all of our guests and and. I suppose most interestingly for our purposes, I've read you for a very long time because I believe my familiarity with you goes back to the Scandal of Pleasure book <laughs> in the mid-90s. Remember that? 1995 with the Mapplethorpe cover of the flower. Right. And so I've been reading you all these decades, and um, you're the author of uh, Venus in Exile, The Real, Real Thing. You teach, I believe, uh, at university or did at University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and uh, you also are a librettist for opera. I have become that, yeah. Become that, and so I, I would like to spend some time in our episode discussing all your many careers and your many, uh, many, <laughs> many ideas. But generally, I like to do kind of a linear chronology. And I guess start from the beginning of how you came to write a book, books like Scandal of Pleasure, Venus in Exile, and then um, out of that framework, uh, what the good stuff, the nonlinear things will start to happen. So, okay. So what, uh, uh, well, first, how did you come to write such terrific books that are both accessible and meaningful? Years well, <laughs> thank you. Um, well... 
um, before the scandal of pleasure, um, I wrote three other books. Um, and what uh, was unusual about them is that they were both, uh, they were about both literature and visual art. Okay. Um, so, you know, I was trained as a, uh, an English professor, you know, an English scholar. And uh, taught in English departments and so on, but I, um, my dissertation was on Gertrude Stein, oh, wow. and she was really influenced by um, Picasso and a lot of other painters. Oh, and uh, so one of my chapters was about uh, what does it mean to talk about Cuba's writing, which is what everybody called Stein. And um, that was the first of, uh, you know, the first time that I, ever afterwards I wrote about um, the connections between the arts. And so it gave me, um, you know, a, a wider um, set of interests um, than normally you could develop within a single discipline. Mm-hmm. And it was, the, I, I uh, began writing in the, well, my, in the late 70s and the 80s, and it was a time of theory, you know, that, uh, and, uh, and I was very enthusiastic about that myself. And so, and, um, so having a kind of theoretical, philosophical orientation toward art also, uh, broadened what I was doing. And, um, I got to, you know, so I wrote about all kinds of topics within um, the connection between the arts. And then uh, by the 90s, by the beginning of the 90s, um, all of a sudden there was one scandal in the arts after another. Yes. Well, I think you're referring now to the the, the culture wars, the first culture wars. Right. Exactly. Now, I, I should interject that I have a I don't exactly have a dog in this fight, but I do have a lot of opinions. And so I should say I'm of the school of thought that we've been in a continual culture war since then. And there has never, so the, not only did the culture war not end, it's just been one 40 year culture war. But, but anyhow, I just didn't mean to interject so soon, but that's kind of. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, I think what's so startling is that the meaning of uh, culture wars, of the phrase culture wars changed so drastically. Because in the 90s, it was really, it was a series of wars, uh, arguments, controversies surrounding culture itself and, right, and right. High, what we might call high culture. And, um, you know, uh, Rushdie and Maplethorpe and political correctness and, you know, there were calls for censorship and all kinds of in the art. Karen Finley and Cindy Sherman and all Right. And all that, yeah. Uh, um, but by the, by our day, what we mean when we talk about culture wars is really a fight between people with very, you know, sort of factions uh, who are of, of people who are split yeah. um, by their take on a bunch of um, uh, often political and uh, economic ideas as, and social ideas too. So it's a it's a kind of um, you know, war between people rather than war over uh, works of art. But anyway. um, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about that. So I I take your point that there is a – so so people often say the dramatic change is um, that the political right was very aggressive then. 
and that the political left is aggressive in the wars now. Mm-hmm. What I mean to say is that from my perspective as an esthete, which is very contrary to both, it's all one thing. It just so happens that the part, you know, so for me, it's less relevant who the players are. What's relevant mm-hmm. is what's been consistent is um, the point of view that's been consistent is the idea that aesthetics is last or least important. And what is the most it's, important thing is ethics, morality, are we right. in society or not? <laughs> that's right. constant. It's just different. It's just that one, one day Pat Buchanan is getting upset and the other day, I don't know, um, I, I don't know who it would be. Somebody's upset over a TV show or something or over. Yeah, or Me Too or, yeah. Yeah, I see those. I mean, again, I don't want to, offend, I guess I'm, maybe it's already offensive to say this. I see those as kind of in a way equivalent. You know, because from my perspective, you know, an aesthetic object like a poem or a song or a network television show or a painting are, are fundamentally not things in the real world. Well, yeah, but that's the crucial point, isn't it? I mean, that was the point I was trying to make in the scandal of pleasure. That's right. That, um, you know, and that's a kind of standard First Amendment argument um, about freedom of expression because expression doesn't hurt anybody, according to me at that time. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, you put a poem out into the world and what does it do? What harm does it do? Well... You know, there's no way to track it if it does do any harm, and um, and because it's interpreted in a hundred million different ways, you know, it's, it's unlikely that it has any particular effect. Or so that was that was my argument at the time, and um, I, I talked about works of art as thought experiments that That's right. That's right. Uh, that you know make our life better. Um. And uh, I've come to reconsider that idea, but it takes a few books to get there. Yeah. <laughs> or it took a few well, books. I, I, can, I can feel that you're doing that in your work. And so I, the, you know, if, you, if um, so I have a number of questions. So I really love these, these, these two books, Venus in Exile and The Real, Real Thing. Now, uh, Venus in Exile, which is before The Real, Real Thing, you're discussing an actual sensibility, right? That mm-hmm. wants to exalt asceticism, not not aestheticism, but like the ascetic, you know, monastery. Yeah. Asceticism mm-hmm. and ugliness, I think, or kind of at the expense of oh Tom Tom Wolf's phrase coziness and comfort. Remember when Tom Wolf was wailing against Bauhaus architecture and the Bauhaus sensibility? He says, Well, whatever happened to coziness and comfort? Or play, mm-hmm. you know, so in a way you're kind of making of course you're not aligned with Tom Wolf, certainly. Uh, in any respect, I don't think. But the similarity is you do think that there was kind of the, you know, your subtitle is the rejection of beauty in 20th right. century art. And there's many examples in that book. I mean, you you know, yeah. um, talk a little bit about well, one of the most interesting things for me is in your first chapter, you pair uh, Mary Shelley. Well, talk about that because it's absolutely fascinating because I felt like, wow. Wendy Steiner, Wendy Steiner, I was so excited to read this because Wendy, because I'm always on this show talking about the importance of the quotidian in daily life and mm-hmm. convenience. And that's what Mary Shelley, you say Mary Shelley was doing. But anyhow, I've spoken too much. 
Go go ahead. I, I, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I I um I think Mary Shelley um is in many ways um, a kind of um, uh, foreshadowing of many things that I uh, think are really important. Um, you know, she she gave us one of uh, you know a, a myth uh, that will last forever of the male creator. Um, as somebody who creates without caring, mm-hmm. you know, he, he creates only for the sake of his own ego, you know, to prove that he can do it. And uh, he does it uh, out of, you know, purely rational, intelligent um, ideas rather than passion or bodily substances or anything else right, like right. that. Right. And, um, and, as, and as a result, the result of that is a monster. Um, and um, a monster whom we should feel sorry for, moreover, uh, not just, you know, somebody, a monster that we should uh, hate and fear and everything, but but a monster who may, in a sense, be us, um, in that we are the products of a kind of scientific sensibility, as she would have it, um, or, um, an intellectual sensibility that, um, that has divorced caring from... Um, intellectual life and and it's and creativity and yeah. you know what could be a better allegory of um, of modernism? I mean, it was sort of yes, uh, you know, the, it, impersonal, the, and the, you know, and militantly impersonal. Um, you know, they, they, that you shouldn't uh, try to understand the work in terms of its uh, author's. Uh, feelings or ideas or life or anything else like that. It was to stand on its own um, as a creation, you know, that um, and you should come to it without any of your own baggage either, you know, just suspend yourself. And you can trace all this pretty straightforwardly back to neoclassical uh, aesthetics, you know, right. Kant and, right. and people like that. And um, Emmanuel Kant, sure, who, who... Well, it's interesting. I've had on my program a, an anarchist philosopher, John Clark, and I believe the first work he wrote was The Philosophical Anarchism of William Godwin. So it's interesting the connections between things, isn't it? Um, mm. Think about William oh, Godwin. Yeah. That is- yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Anyway, so uh, when I tried to, um, you know, obviously this um, Frankenstein is a gendered text as well. It's written by women, and um, the women in the text behave completely different from Dr. Frankenstein. And um, and uh, a lot of modernism uh, was, or modernists, um, in their writings and about literature is extremely misogynistic as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, you know, the thing is that I was raised by the next generation from that, you know, by the, by people trained by modernists. Um, and I was taught and believed that one should, uh, you know, uh, divorce one's petty emotions and everything from, <laughs> from uh, a work of art as one approached it and instead, you know, try and get at it for what it was in itself, you know, separate from everything else and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, it it took um, a lot of a lot of doing too, or a lot of development for me to uh, feel that my 
personal feelings, my individual feelings, my non-universal feelings were worth anything when it came to the experience of art. And I mean, not that I had a lot of, uh, you know, problems with my ego or anything, but it, <laughs> but, it, but we were all taught that our that we were irrelevant, you know, as individuals. True. Would it be fair to say that you were taught to put it in a kind of a blonde or crude manner that you weren't home, that you weren't present or even there? Would that be that would be, I guess, a more a more um, is it is it is it that kind of thing? Like the, almost like leaving yourself out of your own experience or out of the. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say I wasn't home. I, w- I was um, supposed to stay outside while this was right. going on. Right. Well, yeah, I mean that's a that's a very. But isn't is that? Um, so I guess I I guess I'm in a way I'm an outsider. We ask you some informational questions because I'm a little puzzled. So of course that was an orthodoxy, right? That you write about. You write about so well in that book. I, again, I said that book is is going to hold up and be. I hope. Venus in Exile will continue to be taught and read. But 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 in a sense you were kind of struggling, I think, with that or against that to some extent. Mm-hmm. But it makes me think about artists who also in their work challenge that. Now, I don't know why Karen Finley comes to mind. I mean, there are many people, but but I but I'm wondering uh, what are your thoughts about that, or at least uh, in terms of uh, Karen Finley, the 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 performance artist? Yes. Yeah. That that she uh, sort of uh, smeared herself with chocolate and um, in order to simulate excrement and uh-huh. uh, and was um, you know the VNEH got in trouble over the uh, supporting that and so on. Um, well, you know, it seems, well, here's where, where the, the argument begins to move on in, in my mind, um, away from the position that I took in The Scandal of Pleasure, which, it, which was, you know, um, which in a way um, is not all that far from modernist thinking. I mean, Venus in Exile is a real uh, beginning to step away from that. Yes. Um, because, uh, I mean, Karen Finley is enacting a, a social, where she takes as her social position and, um, you know, uh, as a woman, uh, you know, the way that she's treated, the way that um, the world sees her, and she's, you know, exaggerating that in order to to make it um, emphatic and, and right. obvious to people and to, shock, and to be shocking. And I see nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's not, I, I don't, it's not beautiful in, yeah. in my sense of the term, but, but a great deal of art um, is tied up with, um, you know, I, come, I came to see, is, is tied up with um, uh, changing our positions on, on things and, and expressing um, very difficult times that we're passing through. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, it seems to me um, the more that I have thought about all this, the more, you know, and... The recent controversies over Balthus's art, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't been following that as closely as you. So, did you want to go into that? Because I don't know. 
I mean, well, it, 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 a couple of years ago, um, I think it was 2018, um, some uh, women who were connected with the um, Museum of Modern Art um, either as members or members of the board or something yeah. like that, but they were youngish women, um, uh, uh, protest, wrote a letter of protest to the museum saying that uh, they thought it was unconscionable that Balthus's work uh, should be shown because um, he, he made paintings of an underage model in a, what to them seemed um, a suggestive pose and, it, you know, and, and so on. And that such... Um, and this was sort of when Me Too was really heating up, and so this it's an expression of many of the issues in Me Too. And their claim was that when institutions um, promote works like that, um, whether they promote the ideas in them or not, they they are in effect giving a place to them, and that helps legitimize um, discriminatory. Uh, behavior like that, and and you know, I was asked to write an article about it, which I did for a magazine called Apollo, and um, you know, it, it, I, in that article, I sort of wobble. I mean, on on the one hand, I say, well, you know, who, who knows what people think when they. Um, uh, come away from seeing a Balthus painting. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but on the other hand, um, how do we know that it that it, it is not um, legitimizing those kinds of ideas, and that they they are detrimental to right to to society? And you know, I mean, that's a that's a again, I I make a separation between what I would call a public policy issue. Indeed, I wouldn't even say a, an ethical issue and the art object itself. There is surely some separation there. And so mm -hmm. I'm not really sure that's wobbling. One can hold – it's sort of a reminder – one can hold that uh, something – I don't know, but I, I've said too much, but I'm thinking out loud. It reminds me of an interview with um, – do you know the famous interview with um, – in the movie Crumb? Uh, the movie um, Kong? Crumb, you know, R. Crumb, Robert Crumb, the documentary from the... Oh, 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 yeah, I didn't understand. The interview, yeah. the interview with the Australian art critic, you know, yeah. kind of celebrity. Mm -hmm. What was his name? I'm sure you probably met him or known him personally. I don't... Um, what the heck was his name? Like Australian... But I saw the movie. I, I've seen Crumb. I didn't know. I just didn't hear you. That's all. Well, with mm -hmm. the, I'm trying to think of who this Australian critic was. He was kind of a, almost one of those... Oh, um, I know who you're talking about. Uh, what's his name? Uh, it's a common name. Hughes. Um, yeah, that's uh, Robert Hughes. Hughes. The culture of complaint. How's that for right. throw back to the 90s, sort of 90s? Remember all those books like The Culture of Complaint and The, the Disuniting of America and the uh, all that stuff and the Alan Bloom? He's part of that. But anyhow, in the interview, somebody um, uh, uh he, he talked about how Picasso was sexually aroused by his own paintings, right? And he, he, he would sort of get off sexually to his own paintings, right? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Robert Hughes mentions that in passing. 
Mm-hmm. And there is that kind of, um, I guess, there. well, there is an erotic dimension to, to some art, surely not all art, and, and, but that's, of course... Oh, I think there's an erotic, I mean, maybe, I, I think art is all of, I mean, that's what my position at the moment is, that, that art is a kind of, shows you what you like. And it shows you to yourself in the process of liking, That's right. you know, when, when it, when it, when you do like it, I mean, a lot of times you look at art and you couldn't care less, um, it, you know, it just doesn't move you. But when you find something beautiful, for example, you, you not only say, oh, that is wonderful, but, but you observe yourself having that experience and it tells you all kinds of things about who you are and and what it means and it's it's a it's a really profoundly important experience that's available to everybody moreover maybe think of other artists male artists who probably got off in this way like uh, fellini you know fellini actually in their diary entries where fellini talks about his masturbation to some of the co-stars in his films and, and Picasso. I'm thinking about these, um, uh, Fellini would be an example, certainly, right? Um, uh, Picasso, but I mean, it doesn't, the, 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 um, it, it's odd to me that that would be a, I mean, of course it's, it's wrong if it's somebody who's underage, of course, but what I'm saying is, um, I, I guess I'm a little astonished that people are surprised by that, that, that artists, would have sexual feelings. And I guess, like, does that come from the modernist uh, sort of separation of emotion and art or that that's a, and that's the realm of entertainment, right? Rather than mm-hmm. art. I mean, is it a categorical confusion or is it? Right. I mean, the idea was to separate pornography from art um, yeah, well, yeah, and, yeah. and to separate disinterested interest from um, attraction, you know. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of, these things don't really work, right? They sort of fall apart, these airtight categories, right? I mean... Right, right. I mean, that's... Uh, but I'm, I'm sort of a, a, both thinking about Fellini. There's something sort of likable about Fellini, right? I just, I just think of his name, so the pleasure he gets from the women in his films or something, I don't know, it's not, it's not offensive to me. But I, I suppose it could be offensive to other people, right? So people do, you're right, people do differ. And what they can accept, but then then it raises the question of male heterosexuality itself, right? If that well, if that could be on trial or not on trial, or, or, or I don't know, I don't really know. I mean, these are complicated, complicated. Yeah, but I don't think it's um, I offensive isn't. I mean, Karen Finley is offensive to a whole lot of people. I mean, Picasso was offensive when he started making Cubist paintings. I mean. Um, you know, it's not the, it's not the experience of being offended, um, that is dangerous or that that must be eliminated because otherwise, you know, that would eliminate a great deal of art. Um, it's a question of whether uh, these, um, some works of art, um, legitimize by their presence in museums, yeah, which have a presence. That's the that's the question, right? That's a difficult, difficult question. Um, that I think you you so you address that in this essay. Or do you want to talk more about about how you how you? Because I have not unfortunately I haven't read this piece. I try to be oh well, it, written, but I can't. No. Yeah, the, 
My apologies. No, no, no. I'm I'm writing about this now, so I'm oh. sort of in the throes of, of it or, um, in the new book. But um, I so so I'm I'm not entirely clear what I think about it. it, it, it but yeah. um, I, I mean, the chapter that is going to deal with this is going to be um, about the nude in art um, and uh, the great experts on the nude. Um, like Kenneth Clark and uh, Berger, are the two big names, right? Berger and the ways exactly, exactly. Those are the two, and yeah. and um, if you you know you just start reading and what they're doing, and all of a sudden, in and it, this happens, I think, with a lot of people who write about the nude, they start revealing things about themselves that are so. Um, there's nothing wrong with them, but they're they're sort of they're presented as if they're universal um, experiences in sex or in art right. that deals with nudity or something like that, and they're very very particular to these people. And um, yeah. I mean, John Berger says somewhere, you know, when um, when you see a person naked. Um, the, you find for him uh you you see the the sex organ and that's all you think about and i you know i i you know my mouth my jaw dropped open i mean really i mean that's all you see (laughs) maybe it's all he saw but i mean that if you make that a kind of universe Universal statement I mean, is what I, I would not hold that against him, but I could, I could, but again, even that. So I guess what you're saying is that just John Berger, that there's a million, probably a million people that aren't like John Berger, anyhow, right? So that's you know, millions of people, right. and that's it. That's a that's a very important point that, that we tend to overly overly universalize examples, right? And you take take away from the uniqueness of human. You know, because sexuality is a very personal thing, a very personal matter. You know, the movie that comes to my mind, I don't know how you feel about this film, I think it's a great film, is the, the Jacques Rivette film with Emmanuel Bayard and Michel Piccoli, The Beautiful Innocence, which is about a painter. Well, the entire film is Emmanuel Bayard nude uh, as, a, as, a, as a life drawing by Michel Piccoli. It's like a three-hour movie. It's a Rivette film with Jane Burke. Oh, really? Oh, it's an extraordinary film. Well, if you're a Rivette fan, you've got to see it, but... You may not be a Rivette fan, but but um, that film deals with these questions. So I guess what I'm saying is that good artists are kind of dealing with these very questions, but I don't think they're dealing with them in necessarily a decisive way. Like they themselves don't fully know, right? Like this film. I don't know if you what you think about that as a as a as a. Um, well, I mean, some artists are, are really looking at what it, I mean, and a lot of uh, feminist artists are very concerned about um, what it means to be seen unclothed and yeah. uh, and so on. I mean, um, and in the, especially in 70s and 80s, feminists no. are so common. Um, Carolee Schneeman and... Um, yeah, yeah I, love, and, I actually and, got to see her once live as a child. If you can imagine that, you can imagine wow. that in New York. That's a whole other story because I had very unconventional parents, and they would take me to all these. So I would actually see Holly Hughes in like '79, and 
killing stream. It kind of distorted my, not distorted, but it, it kind of opened up my mind to a lot of things. Well, there you are. You can see that art really does affect people, and we have to, you have have to be careful. Be careful of it. Seeing Carly Sheeman's fuses is not going to, not going yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. I, I think she's very. Um, but see, I you know you may look at it differently than I do because I have more. I mean, I see it as. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess when you're performing as a human being. That's that's almost in the realm of theater, right? Rather than painting, there, there are surely differences, and I wouldn't know what you what you think about that. I mean, these are well, one of the, yeah, but performance art sort of blew the uh, the distinction away entirely. You know, I mean, a lot of the uh, Vanessa B. Cross, for example, uh, would um, get a bunch of women, some of them professional models, but some of them not. Um, and have them uh, get naked and uh, wear, wear just shoes and, and have them uh, present in a room uh, and in a gallery and right. uh, just standing there or, uh, you know, and, and uh, so and, and they were uh, still some of the time or, you know, walked, in, walked around some of the time and so on. Um, and, you know, all those um, intermediary um, or mixed media kinds of um, uh, developments in the, in the latter part of the 20th century, you know, really did um, pose a whole bunch of problems um, because they, they sort of mucked around with the boundaries between things so decisively. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah, that, that makes me think about your book, The Real, Real Thing, which I was so excited to finally read. Ten years too late, probably, but in preparation, in preparation for this podcast, I was just blown away by this book. I mean, I just was well, starting. Do you mind starting from the cover? So, who is this? I really love that you included this work from 1977 on the cover. Well, I don't know where to begin. Just as you start talking about how this book came to be, and it's just so beautiful. You know, all the examples, and anyhow, just whatever comes to your mind about how this came. The model of well, art. Oh. Well, what I had been developing um, in Venus in Exile, um, and even somewhat in uh, the Scandal of Pleasure, was a notion of beauty as an interaction, because um, and and uh, art fosters that interaction. So, in other words, um, it's it's next to impossible to um, define beauty. Um, or in any absolute sense, um, or to have people agree as to what is beautiful, because it, it, it isn't a thing and it isn't a property of things. It's, it's a kind of interaction that we um, enter into with, with something else. So, I mean, for example, everybody finds his or her own baby inexpressible. 
beautiful. And that's because of everything that that baby means to you and how you interact with it and it interacts with you and, and all the rest of that. And it, what it objectively looks like means um, nothing. Um, but but um, if, if um, and, and in this interaction that we have with, um, with something uh, that we consider to be beautiful, um, we, as I said, observe ourselves um, yeah. uh, taking pleasure in it. And so I, um, I, I began to think, so that, that is a kind of story about um, the relationship between a work of art and a viewer. But I thought there are so many other factors with, or players, if you like, um, in the work of art. Um, so the work of art um, shows a model, represents a model, or even if it's not a specific model, it represents something about the world, that, you know, that uh, even abstraction does to some degree. But um, I ask you a, a question? So when you say model, could that mean ideals and ideas and abstract principles as well as human beings? Possibly? Sure. Oh, sure. Interesting. interesting. Sure, but um, but that's why the case though of a specific human being model standing before you and all that is is such a an important uh, subset of all that because mm-hmm. that person um, was there, that person uh, was standing in front of the artist or sitting or whatever in front of the artist in um, so as to create um, a focal distance that is like what is represented uh, to us in the um, um, when we stand in front of the painting and in fact you know there are all these sort of intricate uh, correspondences in almost the geometry of perception that um, that connect us so the one thing that you can be absolutely sure is true of every painting mm-hmm. is that when you stand in front of it, you are occupying the position that the person who made it occupied at um, some point in the process of making it. So we're all standing in Picasso's shoes wow. to that degree. Wow. That's a profound. That's a profound oh, correspondence, sure. and um, and uh, insofar as that uh, as Picasso was looking at a particular. A women, woman, or a particular model, or a particular scene, or whatever it was, um, we, by standing in his shoes, are virtually looking at that as well. As well, and he gives us the aid of the picture that um, that sort of uh, registers that moment or that um, experience of looking. So, so we are. You know, we as viewers are connected not just to something, um, an image that moves us, but we are connected to a whole sort of set of relays of people um, and and experiences of uh, of viewing. And, Absolutely. you know, there are other things involved, you know, the, the work, the artist, the viewer, the model, the situation in which the work um um, in other words, its context mm-hmm. um, is is so important as well. I mean, the, the artist's studio 
is where is the context that he was in, and, and uh, the museum or gallery or our living room is our context, and and so those are uh, the studio versus one of those is uh, in a kind of uh, situation of analogy, um, or you know, in other words, their their whole. And, and you know another another element of of this situation is the code of painting. We might say the the history of art, the conventions of representation in art, and so on. And you know, if we're talking about Picasso, but any artist has have a take on that. But we have a take on that as well because of our education, because what we know that that artists maybe didn't know because it happened after he or she was dead already. Um, so, I mean, there are all these floating correspondences that are not quite correspondences, but that create connections among all these um, aspects of, of what a work of art is and how it's understood. Mm-hmm. And it's one of, and they go on multiplying. The more viewers there are who see the work, the more people who write about it and circulate their opinions about it, which enter into our sort of experience of what it is and so on and so forth. And this sort of steadily multiplying um set of interactions is is what makes art so complex and amazing and, and socially that's significant. Why, that's why I'm so happy to have you on my show. Like my dream dinner table is Tracy Emmum sitting, mm-hmm. sitting next to Robert Hughes, sitting next to um Hilton Kramer. Oh God. <laughs> That's my, that's my, that, remember I told you I had my sort of save the world kumbaya. I'm, yeah. So I'm half joking, of course. I'm not, to, I'm not, yeah, I'm not totally, but that, but you see where you, you take my point. So I'm thinking about this in your book, um, uh, uh, Beecroft. Do you mind talking a little bit about her, uh, um, Vanessa B- Beecroft and then the Farrah Fawcett, um, recasting Pygmalion. Those are just two examples. Right. Of, for those that don't know. Talk about what those mean to you, or what those. Well, Vanessa Beecroft was the the artist I was talking about a, a few minutes ago, the one who um, got either models or um, uh, you know normal people who are not right. models, not women, models. Right. Um, and and had them take their clothes off and and um, put them in a gallery and and uh, put a a kind of uh, rope around, you know, like a, a, to keep the audience uh, at at some distance, but not very much of a distance. And so, these these um, women, uh, ordinary women, very often gave up their bodies to be seen. They they gave themselves to be um, their their appearance up to be known by other people in the context of works of art mm-hmm. um, because that sort of setting is where you get um, statues and pictures and mm-hmm. um, so on. So they enacted that and um, and that sort of performance art um, that's why I was saying that that performance art kind of um, blew the roof off um, yeah. you know, a lot of distinctions. Yep, it did. 
I think it's fantastic. I mean, I personally have been. And, but then Keith Edmare and Farrah Fawcett talk about that. That's I'm sorry. Interesting. Uh, Farrah, Farrah Fawcett and Keith Edmare, the, the casting Pygmalion. Yeah, well, I mean, they they did a series of um, uh, portraits of each other, uh, photographs of each other, and um, and they, and they were lovers, and um, yeah. So, uh, and of course, she was the model of all models, um, you know. That and uh, but on the other hand, this was a very personal kind of thing and she became an artist in the process of it and one of the things that I believe is really the case I mean is that um, in the process of modeling the model I mean when we're talking about a human being as a model um, that person is not powerless I mean um, because uh, you know, even if the artist dictates the position that um, that the model takes, and you know, insists that the model sit there as long as as necessary, and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. there's it, nobody can nobody's appearance can be controlled by um, another person altogether, mm-hmm. and and um, uh, you know the the sort of animal force that that model exerts on the artist is, is, uh, you know, the attraction, the, uh, uh, the pleasure of, of seeing him or her in that position. And, um, and so forth, those things, it's an interactive situation. It's not, it's not a one way, um, um, thing. Although, you know, uh, 19th century commentators wanted it to be seen that way, but yeah. But the Pygmalion myth, I mean, the myth of Pygmalion is sort of, uh, you know, age old and um, and uh, already knew this to be the case. I mean, Pygmalion uh, was in the myth, was a sculptor who, um, uh, you know, found all the women in his um, in his area to be uh, imperfect. Um, and. <laughs> <laughs> because he he um yeah. and uh so he um yeah. decided that he w- his statue of a woman was going to yeah. be um made out of his own imagining and he made uh, galatea uh who uh, was absolutely perfect and of course yeah. being an expression of him he fell in love with her <laughs> yeah. um and um and she really, and you know, was pining away and and so forth. And uh, Venus took pity on him and brought her uh, to life, and they got married and so forth. Um, but you know, as kind of allegory of what's involved in um, in the relationship between an artist and um, his his model or his his art in this case. I mean, his ideal. Uh, uh, model um, is, you know, the, that process of seeing what what you like, which is in a way what Pygmalion saw when yep. he made Galatea, is tremendously uh, powerful, you know, and overtakes you uh, or can overtake you in that way. Well, I feel like we're back to we started discussing Mary Shelley. So in a way, there's, right, there's a, certainly Mary Shelley's Pygmalion. Mary right. Frankenstein. 
the, mm -hmm. it's certainly a connection there. Um, right. Well, I, I, I find, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was wondering, because you, you, you're writing yet more books on, you're working on a book now on beauty. Do you mind talking about how you're developing your ideas into the present from these older books? And then, and then after that, talking about what it's like to write an opera. Seems yeah. extraordinary to write an opera. I don't know. I don't. But anyhow, there's a lot to say. But whatever first comes to your mind about your, your current uh, project. Well, the, the um, I'll answer the first question. For the book that I'm writing writing now was um, sort of I was inspired by my reading a book by um, Richard. Prum, who is um, an ornithologist, an evolutionary ornithologist at, at uh, Yale, uh, and his book is called *The Evolution of Beauty*. That's and a beautiful it's a, book. It's a beautiful. I, book. I highly recommend that to our listeners. What is that they should read it? *The Evolution of Beauty* by Robert. Was it Robert? Prum? Richard. Richard Prum. Richard Prum. Get it and buy it. So there. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's an amazing book, but it was amazing to me in particular because all the things that I had written about in my previous books um, uh, in a kind of speculative way, because after all, you know, that's the best you can do as, a, as a, an aesthetician, mm -hmm. um, is uh, he had come to similar conclusions through scientific research, observation, and, and um, a lot of thought, and, um, and a very interesting mind. Um, and, uh, you know, he, I mean, it was kind of uncanny how much of the same ground he, we had covered each, you know, so, um, and um, because um, sexual selection which is Darwinian sexual selection, which is what he was writing about, um, is in the animal world is so um, much um, related to female um, preference. Um, in other words, women are, or females are the choosers when it comes to the choice of mates and so forth. And according to Prum, they choose what they think is beautiful. They choose, in other words, what pleases them. It, he, he describes the choice of uh, females in the animal world as an aesthetic choice, mm -hmm. profoundly aesthetic choice. It's not about guaranteeing, um, you know, uh, survival skills or, you know, picking up strong genes or anything like that. And um, because, you know, and human beings, of course, are more complicated because mating, you know, men choose women, women choose men. Yeah. And they all choose other things, as, or many choose other <laughs> possibilities as well. I mean, it's a... But, but, um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, in a primordial sort of sense, um, women started out as animals, human beings started out as animals, and, um, and females did a lot of the choosing, at least, um, and depending on the evolutionary psychologist or, or uh, uh, you know, biologist you talk to, um, you know, uh, some of them really believe that that women are 
the choosers and have shaped um, human beings. The, you know, are responsible for the shaping. And if Prum is right, the shaping in terms of what they find beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought, you know, that sort of opened up for me huge areas because, you know, the last few books that I had written had kept on insisting on the special place of women in all this. And Venus in Exile, for example, uh, showed this sort of uh, rejection of beauty as also a misogynistic right. um, prejudice and and so on. And, uh, and models are archetypally female and artists are archetypally male, even though, of course, there's, um, there's some variance in that. But, I mean, and so on. Uh, that gender seems so important um, to me and trying to work out these ideas of beauty. And here, here's somebody who just laid it out for me and <laughs> left it on a plate for me to find. And, um, and so the book I'm working on is called The Beauty of Choice. Wow. And uh, a, a, um, uh, Aesthetics and Female Agency is the subtitle. Yeah. So now operas um, are whole... You know, they're not unrelated to all this, but um, they're a, a, a parallel development. Um, long time ago, let's see, when would it have been? In the late 90s, um, I uh, was asked to teach a class because somebody, one of my colleagues got sick and, and they needed somebody to cover it very quickly and everybody was covering all kinds of things for this person. But uh, the person was a medievalist, so it was sort of, they used up all the medievalists and they started asking other people. Um, and since, you know, we, we all are trained to teach all kinds of things we're not specialists in, but we don't talk about that too much. Um, I uh, stepped into a class that was about Chaucer, and I was allowed uh, to choose any of the Canterbury tales I felt like teaching for this class. And I figured, well, The Wife of Bath's Tale, I I remembered vaguely from graduate school that Wife of Bath was this this interesting character and so on. But I didn't remember the tale. And the tale knocked my socks off. I mean, it was amazing. I, 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 I taught it and I felt, you know, I, it could have been written yesterday. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, in two sentences I can explain why. I mean, it's, it's about um, a knight who has raped a maiden and he's condemned to death unless he can find the answer to the question, what do women want most? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, the course of his uh, discovering this is, is sort of amazing. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, and so that it made a huge impression on me. And I began to think, well, what do women want most? I mean, in the in the story, the knight goes around on a quest for a year and asks a bunch of women what they want, and they all give him different answers. And I, I sort of imagined, um, started imagining uh, what some of those answers might be for me, for example, or uh, for characters uh, in later literature, um, or people like Virginia Woolf or stuff like that. And before I knew it, um, not only was I, had I sort of imagined answers that they would give, but those answers were in, 
um, iambic pentameter lines, <laughs> like like Chaucer, and um, and I thought, my goodness, what, what's going on? And I was writing lyrics, you know, oh. song lyrics. And um, once I realized I was doing that, I decided to keep doing it, and it eventually turned into my first opera. So in saying that I write operas, I mean that I write opera librettos. I I do not write music. But um, the problem then was to find a composer, and since I had no no idea how to do that, this thing sat around for a few years. Um, and then I started you picking. Composer, right? You found two composers, right? What? Uh, tell me about that. That's. Well, I started taking music lessons uh, later on, a couple, a few years later, and my I eventually. Um, from I played the recorder, and um, my teacher. I eventually told my teacher about this libretto, and I showed it to him, and he got all excited, and he said, "I have to find." Um, a composer because it could be set for early instruments and that would give them modern music for early instruments and that would be cool and so on. Um, so I asked everybody I knew who knew anything about composers and I, I was getting nowhere and then I, I buttonholed the composer at a party and he told me that he was booked up for the next two years but if I wanted to find a composer I should go to the American Music um, circle um, web, uh, website. When, and that's when where, Steiner, if you had had my number, you could have called me. I would have written, some, written you some music, but, but there you go. <laughs> uh, well, there, so you could have saved me a, a lot of trouble. But on the other hand, uh, out of this came Paul Richards, uh, out of this search, and yeah. he is an absolutely spectacular uh, composer yeah. at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And we have since gone on to write um, one, two, three, four operas. Wow. Um, uh, two of which are uh, premiering this year. <laughs> so now I'm going to try to tell the audience about these dates. That's important. So um, make sure that we include and in in uh, so that people people know it's coming up. And so with this uh, the to, to this year, what, what what is the is there a physical location or is there a um, well, the, one of them is called Mondo Novo, um, and uh, because it's set in Venice in the 18th century, and it is being performed in St. Petersburg, Florida, in a couple of weeks, um, and in Vienna, uh, Austria, in July. Um, because uh, by uh, there's uh, something called the Vienna Summer Music Festival, which is um, a training program for uh, so-called young artists, which are who are opera singers in their 20s after they've finished conservatory, but before their voices have uh, fully developed and they're employed by an opera company. Um, there are a lot of these programs around, and uh, they need they need new material to uh, perform as well as as uh, you know the canon of uh, opera. So um, they asked Paul Richards and me to write them a forty minute opera with most of the parts for women, because most of the <laughs> the people in these workshops are are women, and so it's going to be performed in those two venues, which. Um, is where it's going to be given. And then 
another piece called A Braided Light, um, which was a commission that Paul and I won from White Snake Projects in Boston. And that's going to be performed um, in a program of uh, short operas about religious festivals or celebrations in December. Um, December in Boston. In Boston, and if you're in Boston, December, you must go see Paul Richards and Wendy Steiner. <laughs> a braided light. A braided it's light. Very, Goodness, it's very. It's I, if, it's very beautiful, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, are you going to take the trek down there in, in in the winter to go down there? Of course, I wouldn't miss Maybe it. Maybe I should. You know, I used to. I lived, as you know, I lived in Boston for thirty years. I no longer do, unfortunately. So maybe I should take that opportunity to go down there and and uh, see that in person. I would love that. That would be that would be because I know that um, I, I guess we're coming coming towards a conclusion. But I know you have a lot more you could say. Is there anything you want to say more about what it's like to work with one composer over so many works, or that that relationship, or or well, it, it it is wonderful because we it's. I mean, talk about um, an interaction and an understanding and, and so on. It, it's so, I mean, I always talk about how a li- when you write a libretto, you have to leave space for the music. And that's why uh, librettos are different from stage plays and they're different from poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, they're specifically meant to be filled out. Um, in different ways by the music and Paul and I sort of know or Paul and I know how to do that uh, so that it works for Paul and that's really exciting but I've also um, been working with a woman composer called uh, Frances White who is, is a wonderful composer and um, we're, we have um, a long uh, mono opera in uh, production uh, or in um, you know, the course of creating the music is, is mm-hmm. almost finished for it. Um, but an excerpt from it um, has been recorded and um, uh, I use that soundtrack um, for a piece that I did in the Venice Biennale. It's an insta- um, installation that uses kind of my photographs, mm-hmm. uh, which in the opera, the opera is called Upon Reflection. And um, it's um, sung by a photographer who is at the opening of her work. And um, so she's singing about the 10 photographs that, um, that are part of this installation. And she's present in, in Venice in this um, installation as a hologram um, uh, with the soundtrack playing as she sings it. So um, that, is, that is the most recent um, piece of mine that came up. I'm excited so, about that because I've often dreamed in my imagination a kind of an artwork combining all these things, and this very project upon reflection is is kind of an is kind of a realization of that, right? Because you have photography, you have music, you have libretto, and you, you have holograms and holograms, and that's really that's really um so excited to hear about that. That's um wow, and that's yeah. what's your you all you're in the rehearsals of that now, right? Um, well, the, um, the, yeah, there, there's on YouTube, there's, um, or is it on YouTube? I guess maybe it's on the, um, 
the website of the um, of Partinio, who are the musicians uh, who played in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they uh, wanted to um, do a performance um, of a rehearsal mm-hmm. um, in front of an audience, and uh, in January, and COVID got in the way, so oh, sure. we videotaped that um, that. Uh, performance and added to it our, uh, you know, conversation that we all held together about various things about it. Um, so that's that's on online as well. YouTube. Well, I'm going to try to d- draw a link to that in the, in the, when we air this episode. But I really, um, this has been exciting for me, and I really want to thank you for your, well, first of all, your generosity of spirit in doing, coming on this podcast. But also your ideas, which are important, and, and, and also your prose, which, and this is a compliment, isn't afraid to be accessible. The general public can read it, which I think is important. And I, I certainly look forward to your book on beauty. When do you, do you have an idea of when that was going to? Well, I'm hoping it'll be, fin- you know, the manuscript of it will be finished um, by the end of the year. Okay. So, Yeah. That's excellent. Well, I want to thank you for all of these, all of this. And is there anything you, um, even good things like this come to an end, is there anything you want to <laughs> share with share with the audience or listener? Um, well, no. I, I mean, all I want to say is what a pleasure it's been and, uh, and how wonderful it is that you do this podcast um, and keep the subject of beauty uh, in people's minds, um, it, it never leaves our minds really, but it seldom sort of comes up to conscious um, thought in in this way, and that's great. Thank you, Wendy Stein. Thank you, and uh, I, I look forward to people hearing this. Great. No, thank you. Bye bye. Bye. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Mm-hmm.